support for this podcast made possible by you. Visit www.allgirlsconsidered.org slash donate to help us build a world of endless possibilities for girls. Hi, my name is Nora Berry. Hi, my name is Trinity Edgar. And we're All Girls Considered, the Glenn High School chapter, and we're here with Karen Stortz Briggs. Could you tell us about the lawsuits that occurred around 2010? Uh, yeah, I would be happy to. So I was working as a high school librarian at Fulton High School in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I was also sponsoring a school club, a GSA or Gay Straight Alliance. And in my capacity of working with students, looking for information about all kinds of things things in the public discourse. What are people talking about? And in my work with students in the Gay Straight Alliance, we encountered lots of websites that were blocked by the school's filter. So I tried a lot of avenues to get those websites unblocked um, and ran into a lot of dead ends. So yes, there was a lawsuit and the lawsuit was presented by the ACLU of Tennessee to just simply provide access to information that was that was equitable, essentially, is how that boils down. The name of the lawsuit, which you can look up and all the information is readily available online, is Franks, um, F-R-A-N-K-S, Franks, versus the Metropolitan Board of Public Education. That's kind of a whole mouthful. <laughs> I think what you did was great because I feel like when we're in school, we don't learn about the real things that we should be learning about. And just to have these things like withheld from us is just insane. What made you like lead to start a lawsuit? Because that that's a big deal. A lawsuit. Not not many people are thinking there's something wrong with this. I'm going to do something about it. And not only that, but not a lot of um, not a lot of like. uh, students or teachers have the time management or the just you actually like go through with the, all of that, especially like you um, were on that one of the students that was part of the trial was only a freshman. Right. I love what you already know. I'm so excited. Uh, this is such a great conversation because yes, like all the things that you've talked about already, the best, best part of it to me, what I always say is student voice. And it really was about students being able to sign on and see something tangible. Like they really did make a difference. And it was never supposed to be a lawsuit. And it's so funny. The fact that you talk about time management and all the things that teachers and educators kind of have to do. What I say about school librarians is that like, hey, access to information was just my job at the time. And it felt very much like an obligation and like a facet of my job. And I honestly thought it was going to be the simplest, easiest process. I'm going to fill out the online form for the company that had, you know, the filtering process in place. And I learned a lot about that, like about school filters and like how the contract works in a very long, drawn out, kind of convoluted process. So I was like, hey, folks. And in fact, I have a chronology in front of me because I knew I would kind of forget how things sort of played out. So the whole process started in August of 2007. And I was like, late, hey, let's uncheck this box. Like these websites should not be blocked. We're looking at nonprofit websites. They're designed to inform. They're the kinds of things that students would access all the time to find valid information. 
like nonprofit agencies. And unchecking the box did not work. And it was just this very drawn out, like across 2008 and 2009, all the things that were happening until finally it was June of 2009 that those websites were unblocked. And so the cool thing for the kiddos in Nashville and at my school in Knoxville who were involved as plaintiffs in this lawsuit is that they got to see, because of the craziness of the filter, there are only really a couple of companies available that can provide this filter. And in public schools, if you want access to that public funding to keep yourselves afloat and to get students the resources that they need, you have to have a filter in place. There's federal legislation about the filter. So you really have kind of company A or company B. And so it's like, who has the contract in time so that we can, you know, do all the things that we need to do in order to provide access to students? So like, ironically, students were not getting the access that they needed. And, and what we found out in the lawsuit is that it wasn't just a matter of keyword searches. So I say too, nobody was really trying to do anything nefarious. Like there was not like an evil process that, you know, we're trying to keep this information from students. It was just a big cycle of of miscommunication. But it really started at one point with somebody, you know, checking a box again that said, we don't want students to have access to LGBTQ information. So it wasn't about porn. It wasn't about, you know, fetishy kind of crazy things that we would want to keep students away from. And and eventually, like there was a moment, the creepiest thing that happened is there was a moment where they kind of tried to hide that category and not talk about the fact that there was a box called LGBT that had been intentionally blocked. So I didn't, I'm not a litigious person. I'm not excited about lawsuits and like, let's sue some people. I really just wanted for my students to have access to information and they wanted it too. And there was a student at another school who was looking at scholarship information based on his minority status as an LGBT student, identifying student, um, and couldn't get access to scholarship information because of this terrible, you know, checked box and, and blocking things in the filter. So it wasn't like it was a keyword search, like, you know, and that was just catching up a lot of things accidentally in a net. It was on purpose. Mm -hmm. So very, very carefully, the ACLU got to figure out, you know, they wanted to make sure that they handled it in a way that meant that we were fixing it kind of for good, that we were making it very clear that the filter was intentional, was not casting a wide net, was unequitably blocking information because what was really happening is that students could get access to like pray your gay away sites and like reparative therapy that's proven to be by all kinds of organizations, educational and medical, to be really, truly damaging. And students could get access to those sites, but they couldn't get access to sites about scholarships or just, you know, information about what they wanted to research and, and talk about, like, you know, same-sex families and adoption and, you know, all of that kind of good stuff. So, so the result of the lawsuit, you know, no, but there was no money exchanged. It was really just about access to information. And so in June of 2009, when the websites at my school and at Nashville schools got unblocked, that affected about 
80% of the schools in Tennessee because there was company A or company B. And the same situation was happening all over the nation. So it also unblocked about that percentage of sites in Indiana, for example. Mm -hmm. And then the ACLU followed up this lawsuit with an online instrument aimed at students called the Don't Filter Me campaign. And so they were reaching out and they said, hey, we would like for you to try these couple of websites. Like, can you get to these? Can you get to those? And if you find that you can't get to, you know, the humanrightscampaign.org, but you can get to Pray Your Gay Away, um, then we want you to tell us about it. And the response was so immediate and so profound. And they sent so many letters to so many schools about it that schools started to be proactive and say, well, we need to check our own filters. Like this is in the news and students need access to information. So the effects were very, very profound. And again, for me, it was just honestly about doing my job. And even, you know, my ACLU attorney said, yeah, but like, okay, Karen, who who else is really doing it? And I'm like, well, okay, (laughs) like maybe I'm more tenacious than some, Um, but it was really a facet of my job coolest part is, again, for students to see their names and their work and their efforts attached to to something that had those broad reaching effects. So students are awesome. Yay. <laughs> so uh, were some of the websites that were blocked, some of like the life-saving websites like Trevor Project or websites? Like- uh, yes, as a matter of fact. Oh. So th- yes. Among the sites that we were looking at and kind of asserting primarily were things like GLSEN, the Gay Lesbian Straight Education Network, and and again, like Trevor Project and things that, and you know, this is kind of ancient history for you all now. Like I think about 2007 and that's sort of a heartbeat away from me, <laughs> but for you, that's kind of like in the distant past. So there are things, I feel like there are websites and there are projects and there are resources for students that are such an integral part of our consciousness. Like you said, the Trevor Project that may not have even necessarily been so primary, but so GLSEN is an organization that does some very important research on a regular basis across all the states in the nation and beyond um, about what student experiences are like in school. And they also provide a voice to students to say, um, how are faculty and administration treating you? What is your day-to-day school experience like? Are you experiencing verbal bullying, physical bullying? And, And it's really, those are the kinds of organizations and the kind of research that helps to make students safer and feel safer and their lives better. And glisten.org had been endorsed by the National Education Association. So these were sites that were looked at truly as teaching tools and as important safety nets for students. And one of the things that I was told very early on in the process is, well, you can submit a request to override the filter And, you know, students can come to you and say, hey, this is the website that I'm looking to find. I need an override, which would really just essentially remove the entire filter for a specific span of time on a specific date. And it's like, well, friends, that's not access. That means that a student has to talk to an adult about specific research or specific websites or things that really you don't check your right to privacy at the schoolhouse door. And there were, 
you know, lawsuits that set the precedent for that and the kinds of rights that students have at school. So it was like, well, this is not, this is not what access looks like. And this is not the kind of institution of democracy that a, that a public library in a public school is supposed to be or access to information in the public domain is supposed to be. So we had to fix it. (laughs) Yeah. Even though this was like a big step for students, like to have that information, there's still things like, you know, sex education in states where they're just teaching abstinence Mm -hmm. instead of safe sex. And I wanted to know what is the next steps for someone who wants to get involved in not just this change, but other changes like this? Okay, that's a brilliant question. I'm glad you asked. Because I'm an irredeemable like information pusher, so I'm not a practicing librarian right now, but it is a major part of my worldview. So connecting people to resources is my favorite, favorite, favorite. So there is an organization called... I hope I can remember now that I'm on the spot. Um, I feel like the acronym is VOYA, V like Victor, O-Y-A, and it's Voices of Youth Advocacy. And they publish wonderful information about, designed for all kinds of audiences. So parents, students, educators, about what does sex education look like on a state-by-state-by-state basis? What are the specific laws? And then, you know, what can you do to fix it? And there is a wonderful group of students who started an organization that is now a community organization here in Knoxville to try to address the school board. And and they have affected some change as well, as far as saying, we have had a quote unquote health educator presenting information to students without necessarily the qualifications to do so. This is not a person with a teaching certificate or any kind of a degree in education who is presenting abstinence-based information to students. And there's a lot of kind of icky stuff that was getting really bundled up in that. Like um, not all the information is accurate, which is really problematic. And it's extraordinarily heteronormative, like another another conversation about different kinds of partners or different kinds of relationships doesn't even exist. That's just not going to get addressed at all. And there were some issues with, you know, sexism and slut shaming and, and, and all those things that make an experience, you know, just trying to get good information uncomfortable and and harmful for students. So, so there was a group of students who really spoke out. They created a video, they interviewed a bunch of people. So really they're doing the job that you all are doing by amplifying some voices and asking great questions. And, and so we, it's been a long time coming, you know, it's a very, very slow arc and it always requires a lot of persistence and that can feel frustrating. And there was a student who, um, was really instrumental in in helping with the, it's not really my lawsuit but the one that I was involved in Franks versus Metropolitan Board of Education who kind of aged out of the process so was no longer in high school when this litigation happened and that's you know devastating for me you know that student handled it really with finesse but but it's hard to see to not be able to see immediate results of your hard work mm-hmm. so 
it definitely does require some tenacity. It requires a willingness to just plant seeds and to hand over the work to some other people when you haven't seen the results yet. And that's a hard and frustrating thing, but how gratifying to to really be able to see public and tangible results and to get other people to sign on to your mission essentially is, is a really wonderful thing. So, so my advice is to go to those sites that are doing good research and that are connecting the right audience with those kinds of resources. So know what the laws are. And, you know, organizations have set up public meetings in places like Hooray Public Libraries um, and invited the public to say, is this something that you too have struggled with? You know, here's the issue. And if this makes you angry, then here's a petition. And this is when the school board meeting happens. And here are the email addresses to, to contact the folks on the school board. So, so knowing what it's like in your state and knowing what the specific laws are and, addressing people like school boards who can say like, this is where our funding is going, which in a public school is public funding. This is where taxpayer dollars are going to like this terrible educator who's not an educator who is misinforming our kiddos or, um, you know, like we can do better. And this is what all the research says about students being healthy and students making good decisions is, they need information. They need comprehensive sex education. They need to know where to go to find to find good facts. Um, so, so yeah, those those resources are out there. Now that we're on the topic of sex and like sexual health, seeing as you're working within women's health, what exactly does your job entail? So here's what I like to say about it. Um, when I left my job, I loved being a school librarian, and it's still heartbreaking for me that my job changed significantly enough. And I was running into, I mean, you've already learned about me that I'm not shy about a barrier, but the cost to me, the cost that I was seeing to students, the way that my job had changed was untenable to me. It's not something that I felt like I could productively work within. So leaving my job without having another one <laughs> as not a very young person anymore. Um, felt I felt like I was bringing a lot of skills to the job market. Like I was excited about what was new. A library is a very dynamic entity and librarianship is very dynamic. And so I liked to kind of have a different job every day and know that it was something that was going to evolve and I could continue to grow and I could continue to learn. So it was like, okay, cool. I'm just on to the next thing. And we're going to see what's out there for me with my skill set of managing people and managing resources. And the best, most wonderful part for me about being a librarian is just the simplest part of it is to greet people warmly and without judgment and connect them with good resources. So what I do now is I am a front office assistant at Planned Parenthood. So I make about a third of the money that I made before. <laughs> but I greet people warmly and without judgment. And I show up and talk to our wonderful patients all day long, every day. And so there's a really similar vibe. Like I feel like I'm, this is a way for me 
to continue to serve my community. Because honestly, like when you're an educator and you are, are kind of working in that capacity, like I couldn't just be some kind of corporate shill. <laughs> I couldn't really work for like the man. And so I'm working in this nonprofit organization and I don't, it's kind of satisfying to me that in my very small role, and it is a very small role, um, I'm exempt from a lot of the bureaucracy and I don't, I just get to interact with our patients much like I used to interact with students and it's constantly delightful. So it's a small way to make a difference, but really I'm just like a receptionist and I love it. And this is a way for me to provide a very humane kind of service to other people while also being very humane to myself. I feel like what you're doing is amazing because mm-hmm. there, there are people who go there and think it's a scary place and think it's, I don't know, it's somewhere you shouldn't really be going. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you feel people should know about Planned Parenthood? I love your questions. I just want to constantly reinforce how how great you are. I'm having such a good time with this conversation. I hope people are too. We have protesters outside our building every day. And in a lot of places, that that is really dark and terrible. For us, not so much. Like I say that our protesters are kind of like furniture, like they're just there. (laughs) Um, They have their dumb signs. (laughs) Um, And they, I I can't help but make some analogies with librarianship all the time because that was such a significant part of my life. But, you know, as a librarian, the enemy was the censor, right? Like people who would try to pull books off the shelf and you know, that seems like such an evil thing, but the censors, people who try to get things removed and are, this is absolutely not appropriate for students or our community, or we don't want this here. They really, really believe that they're doing the right thing. And they have a lot of passion for that. And so I also try to remember that, you know, the protesters outside with their dumb signs, it, it hurts me very much that they are making things difficult for people seeking health care. It's a very unproductive thing to do, in, no matter what their belief system is. So for me, it's extraordinarily counterproductive, and it reads to me like a really mean, venomous thing to do. But they believe that they're doing the right thing, standing outside with a sign, <laughs> trying to make people feel bad for seeking health care. <laughs> so, so my worldview is that's it's a huge problem. Those people who are standing outside, even if they're quiet about it. And even if they just kind of hold up a sign about it, what people are doing here is seeking healthcare. And, and those folks with the signs who really believe they're doing the right thing and who really believe that they're, you know, out there kind of getting it done, whatever. They have no idea what really happens inside this building where I'm sitting, in fact, right now talking to you (laughs) off the clock. We, the majority of the patients that we see, yes, we provide abortion services here. And yes, I think it's really important to say the word abortion out loud. And to a lot of the work that some folks in this organization do is to try to destigmatize that and to really talk about, you know, somebody that you love has had an abortion. That's the statistic. And so when we say negative things about that decision, about that aspect of healthcare, we stigmatize and provide harm to a lot of people. It's really kind of the way that the conversation can sometimes turn about people along the LGBTQ plus spectrum 
you know, you say some things out loud that maybe seem like, you know, doing the right thing. And really you are evoking harm on people who are just living their lives the very best way that they know how and are trying to be the full glorious breadth of who they are. It can be a very long and very detailed conversation about healthcare and about everything that is gets sort of bundled up into, you know, reproductive health. So you, we've talked about sex education and it starts there. Access to really good information is the early, you know, in an age appropriate way, you know, starting with mm-hmm. teaching very young people about the concept of consent and that they are in charge of their own bodies and they get to say no about some things and they get to be, they get to sit with their discomfort and it's okay to be uncomfortable about some things. And that can start, you know, as soon as someone has language. And, and so that sex education and, and comprehensive information is a really important part of it. And then, you know, people get to seek healthcare and have access to condoms and have access to all, you know, everything that we know about how to be intentional about your reproductive health and keep yourself and your partners safe and and how to and it really starts with words and how to comfortably talk about the things that are important to us and the things that make us uncomfortable and things that don't have anything to do with physical intimacy even necessarily and it's a lot healthier and you you get to know a lot more about how to be healthily physically intimate when you have access to all of those things and you know that you can say no and you know that you can have a full conversation about all the things that are important to you, you know, whether that's about physical intimacy or not, you know, that's a, that's a really great and important place to start. And so we, you know, have educators here that are, that go out into the community and that talk to young people and that empower young people to educate their peers and to have good information. And one of the things that we do here is provide gender affirming hormones. And so for trans people who are really, you know, we've had our trans patients, which is a significant majority of the people that we see here, honestly, um, who there are very, very few places for them to be able to go and get good care and get the medication that they need in order to be able to live as their most authentic selves and to feel comfortable and presenting themselves to the world, right? So they come to us and they walk past those same protesters and they say things out loud like, don't they know that you save people's lives here? Like you are keeping me alive by letting me be who I am. That, as you can understand, feels like very meaningful work. Your job is extremely rewarding seeing all those people get the help that they need. I remember um, in middle school, our sex education was very much abstinence. And like, yes, they taught us about the human body and the uh, reproductive organs and the different birth control methods, but that was about it. Yeah. Remember the person that I was dating at the time, they identified as gender fluid Mm -hmm. and the PE teacher who was teaching us was very much avoiding the topic of same-sex couples mm-hmm. or like other genders in general. My um, partner, I guess, at the time mm-hmm. raised their hand up was like, hey, what about, you know, two men or like two women? You know, like that's legal now. Shouldn't that be a conversation that we talk about? And the 
PE teacher was so mad, seemed like annoyed that they had brought it up and was like kind of like men and women and men and women and women like the entire mm-hmm. time. And I remember the next day, uh, the PE teacher, she was sick and the science teacher filled in instead. And she was amazing. She not only educated us properly about consent, but she gave her own stories about it. Like there was this one time she was at a party and this dude was like coming on to her and she was very much intoxicated. Her friend like swooped in and kind of like saved her from that situation. She found out a couple hours later that if her friend um, had not uh, came like come in and like swooped her and saved her, mm-hmm. that she would have been his next victim. Wow. Yeah. He really hit nailed that like consent was key. And I am so grateful mm-hmm. for that one day she was there. And that brings up a really important point about who is presenting young people who are impressionable and who are desperate for and deserving of good information, right? Like who is presenting this information to them and how do we handle that process? So one of the things that, you know, the young people in my community were so angry about is, you know, this one person who, you know, Planned Parenthood used to be able to come out to public schools and talk to young people. And because we are such anathema, because people have such big feelings about this organization and what they think it stands for and what our goals and our our focus is here, a parent complained about Planned Parenthood talking to students. And so Planned Parenthood was effectively banned from campuses in the district. And so they're like, well, we have to give young people this information. What do we do now? And so this one person was sort of signed on and did a rotation of like a week here and there at all of these different schools to sort of meet the curricular mandate. But, you know, the mandate was not really being met and students were not getting the information that they deserved and were not getting the tone and the the breadth of information that, like you said, was so important to you as a student to be able to hear something relatable or to see yourself imaged in the curriculum and have it, you know, make sense to your life and your partners. And yeah, it's, it's critical who delivers the information adults are as uncomfortable or more uncomfortable than young people talking about this information so often. And the stakes feel very high and nobody wants to get in trouble. You know, nobody wants to get fired. And I would talk to my students in the Gay Straight Alliance who would be talking to me about the issues that they were having in their relationship. And it was, you know, it's like, we all care about each other here and you care enough to not get me fired. And I, you know, like nobody wants to overstep the bounds, but I also really care about my students and really want for them to be safe and really believe in how much they deserve good quality information. So it's like, well, let's, let's get to this information together and let's answer the real questions about your lives 
because we know, like we know the research is there to say, you're going to be healthier. You're going to make better decisions. You're going to have a better quality of life. You're going to come to school more. You're going to do better in school. If you feel safe, if you are healthy, if you know about what is risky and you, and you are feeling confident about your ability to make informed decisions. So it affects every aspect of your health. And you know that and adults have access to that information. So we just need to make sure that we are acting on it. It is honestly amazing how uh, headstrong your students were at GSA. And I kind of wish that we had more students here at Glenn that were like that. Here, I don't really see like such issues of (coughs) being censored on the with such like LGBT issues. But there have been a lot of times whenever we have interacted with some students and teachers who are not very open-minded, especially with LGBT. And it's kind of like with some teachers, it's something that's avoided and not talked about, Mm -hmm. which is honestly very... It, It honestly breaks my heart and my friends' hearts and their morale, especially with how they identify. Like I have several friends who have who are very open about their identity, and yet mm-hmm. the teachers refuse to say their preferred name or pronouns. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me very grateful that there are people like you who want, wish to bring out the acceptance and the um, I'm at a loss for words right now on all honesty. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. What is your favorite part about educating people on overlooked issues? I just, I mean, to me, it seems obvious that when a person is in a job in the public sector, whose job is to care for anybody else, whether that's teaching, whether that's in the medical field, I feel like we're seeing a lot more pushback. It's terrible that there has to even be pushback, but that if you are ready, if your plan in your life, in your career path, in your day-to-day activity is to serve the public, then that means 100% of the public. And so if you are not, if a person is not fully present for 100% of their students, um, and we we know the statistics. We know who's sitting in our classrooms. And so if we can't use language and we can't access curriculum that is that honors 100% of that population, then we're not doing it right. And just like, you know, get working, doing everything within my capacity to getting my students access to the information that they needed just felt like my job. Mm-hmm. Serving 100% of students should just feel like a job. That being said, people do the best that they can. And we still have a culture that unfortunately bombards us with, you know, messages that that are that become embedded in people's core, right? So whether you're hearing that information from a pulpit or whether you're hearing that information from family members or whether you're hearing that information from teachers, like we we all know how easy it is to internalize some of those messages, even when we are sort of boldly standing against that messaging, you know, we're stand, we're, we're pushing back on, you know, patriarchy and misogyny and sexism and 
transphobia and, and all of that, you know, we're, we're pushing that card against that. Um, those messages are really pervasive and it's hard for people to get over. And so, I mean, I cannot tell you how viscerally painfully it affects me to know that some of the biggest bullies in schools are, can be teachers and administrators. And we hear those stories all the time. And it's unconscionable to me, but, you know, I try to dig deep into my humanity and think about, you know, the folks who are censors and the folks who are, you know, out there holding their hateful signs out in front of people seeking healthcare and, you know, people do the best that they can, but we know better. (laughs) And so if folks like you continue to push back as you do and continue to elevate people's voices, you know, with a different message so that um, non-binary people, genderqueer people, people all along the LGBTQI plus spectrum, people of color can hear their own voices, can take the microphone, can um, have their worldview elevated in a way that can inspire those folks who still somehow can't use people's names and pronouns, can invoke some empathy. It's not always possible. You know, it's not always possible. People get stuck. But as you know, the tone of our conversation, I feel like has really been about when people have access to good information, they can do better because they know better. So we have to just keep keep pushing and keep reminding them of all that good research that says using a young person's name and pronouns um, keeps them alive, like literally keeps them alive. Um, we know about suicide rates and we know about anxiety. We know about the things that keep young people out of school and... Um, <coughs> you know, that undermines their success and not only in school, but in their career path and in their relationships. So, so we don't want to keep doing the stuff that undermines young people. We're supposed to be, you know, launching you upward and and outward in a way that feels good and that makes sense to you. Um, So, so keep, keep pushing and know that every time you use someone's preferred name and you use their correct pronouns and you show them that you see the entirety of them, um, you are doing immeasurable good. Definitely. And I hate that topics like these are so like taboo in school because it's so important to talk about it because it just feels so good to say the word sex and abortion and trans out loud because whenever I'm talking about it with my friends, we're always, you know, in a room. Sort of very, like hush, yeah, hush about yeah, it. Yeah, like looking around, talking. see which yeah. teacher. Yeah. We have so much to say. We always have so much to say. And it's just, it's it sucks that we don't get to say it mm-hmm. in, out loud. Especially since, like you said, using someone's preferred name and pronouns does save lives. And our last and final question, which I hate. Yep. This conversation has been amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to girls listening to this podcast? Oh, gosh. Just be, I'm going to start with the cliche. Just be true (laughs) to yourself and know that that self is going to change and evolve. And it's okay for tomorrow's self to not be the same as today's self. It's okay to reinvent it's okay to question everything. And I think it's so important to use your voice and not let 
all of that external stuff keep you quiet and you're, you're expending brilliant efforts toward that end. So you should be really proud of that. But, but yeah, I think that girls are, we know still socialized to be quiet and to be reserved and to defer to other people. And that is how, you know, it's seen as polite. And I just think it's great to be loud and it's great to state your opinion. And, um, it's also great to, to feel like you can change and grow and be different and try things on. And, um, that can completely change the next day or the next month. Um, you know, it's okay to reevaluate and not get stuck. And finding mentors, I mean, you've, you've expressed to me how important that is to hear other people say some things out loud that are meaningful. And so, you know, finding the people that you can look up to to give you a lifeline is a really important thing. You have access to so much information and it can it can feel overwhelming. So I think if you just, you know, start start with the person that you are and your your own convictions and to hang on to those. That's a really great place to start to be able to weed through all of that other stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. It was very informative and I love it. Um, it's such a pleasure. You know where I am now. You can really contact me anytime. You know, um, high school students and middle school students are really the, the joy of my life. I think that you have so much to offer. And, and so I'm, I'm very glad that we had this time together. I will look forward to hearing more great things from you all. All Girls Considered believes in a world where girls and women matter. You can support our work by donating at www.allgirlsconsidered.org slash donate right now. We can't do this without you. 